and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Scream 2. Hello, and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. Julio, how are you doing on this rainy Thursday evening as we head in? It's Cinco de Mayo right now, so (laughs) did you have any tacos or margaritas, or did you just keep it uh, pretty standard today? Sir, that is racist, except it isn't. It's not (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying like because you're Hispanic. I'm saying just because I made tacos and I had a glass of tequila when I ate. Not a glass, Jesus. I had a serving of tequila with my tacos to honor your uh, your ancestors. Uh, I just like making tacos. I made <laughs> shrimp tacos and they were delicious. Yeah, I had one of those uh, McDonald's sausage burritos. Does that count? I, I am ashamed of you as a whitey that you didn't go out and get some make or get some real tacos, but here nor there. I I assume the cast of the movie we're covering today, every one of them would think that that counts for Cinco de Mayo. So there you go. <laughs> Including Wes Craven. Oh, absolutely. Wes Craven always Wes be craving some tacos. <laughs> Boo. Boo. Wes Craven, just the look of him and his voice and just his mannerisms always struck me as a guy that had no palate for food. <laughs> like just had no appreciation for finer food. Like he could go to fucking New Orleans and just want to go to 7-Eleven and get uh you know a hot dog off the roller or something. Take a selfie in front of the in front of yeah, the hot yeah, dog yeah. machine. But yeah, he he definitely just seems like no seasoning ever. Like just a your standard white person. I mean he he was a purveyor of white people shit. His dream was to make a movie with Meryl Streep. Well, I mean that tells you all you need to know about the guy. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we are here today to continue on with the Friends Stravaganza as Scream 2, for the second time the Scream franchise, has made its way to the Contrarians airwaves. It's been a long time since we discussed it, but way back when uh, we had a Scream 4 episode. I like to think we've come a long way since then, Julio. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think, man, have we done anything but trash with Scraven in this show, though? Because we did Scream 4, we did the first Nightmare... Oh no! Uh, New we did the, yeah, we did the commentary for New Nightmare, so that one that one was pretty positive, I think, overall. But here we go again. Well, again. I was about to say some of us, some of us praised Wes Craven in the Scream Four episode, Scream Two, December twelfth, nineteen ninety seven, the follow up to the wildly popular game changing horror entry Scream of nineteen ninety six. Uh, Dimension and the Weinstein's told Wes Craven, "Get your ass back in the saddle." <laughs> 
We got money to make, baby. Just as importantly, a Monica Geller vehicle, a Corny Cox vehicle. Would would you would you say it's a Corny Cox vehicle, or or is it more of a Nev Campbell vehicle? And Corny Cox is kind of riding her coattails. See, I think the first scream is what you would define more as a vehicle, and that would be for probably Nev Campbell, a little bit of Skeet Ulrich. Uh, this just definitely feels like more of an ensemble cast because you don't really get to spend much time with individual characters in this. When you think something's about to develop about Sydney, it's like, oh, here's Gail, or here's Dewey, or here's Randy. Here's a here's a song from the, the modern time. <laughs> here's Timothy Oliphant. Man, it was I didn't realize it was less than one year. Scream premiered on December twentieth in the United States of nineteen ninety six. That was its wide release. And then December twelfth, this bad boy came out. They would have, I guess they had to have known it was going to be, I don't know to what level of success, but for that quick of a turnaround, they had to know it was going to be big. You think Kevin Williamson had the entire quadrilogy planned already? Everyone's hair changes so much, though, in a year. (laughs) Nev Campbell, my God, she's so hot in this movie. I mean, she's a gorgeous woman still to this day, but dog, when they showed her in her bed there, like waking up, I was just like, my God, I forgot how hot she is. And then Courtney Cox just, we'll get to it here momentarily, but the uh, decisions that were made with hair towards the end of the 90s were quite something. And then Timothy Oliphant just looks basically like he does now. Instead of spiked up, it's just slicked back. And then Jamie Kennedy, I guess between Scream 1 and Scream 2, finally got his pubes because he's got his facial hair and his like <laughs> sideburns going on and shit. And then <laughs> Leif Schreiber actually gets to be in this movie. And boy, what a whirlwind of a performance that is <laughs> yep <laughs> julio right before we hit record i mentioned that it's uh it's been a while since we did a movie that i've watched so many times that i'm so familiar with and i've probably seen this you know cover to cover six or seven times would this probably be like your third or fourth viewing of it mine <laughs> yeah no <laughs> this is the first time i watched the beginning to end what yeah, remember I told you I the only time that I watched it before, uh, I fell asleep when uh, uh, Jerry O'Connell, the hunk of the movie, uh, was all tied up by his fraternity brothers. Yeah, that's coming back to me now. But like, yeah. I guess I just in my mind you would have seen it because we did Scream Four. No, I haven't even seen Scream Three. So my I my do relationship. That. That's fine. Yeah, my relationship with this franchise is pretty is very complex. As in, like, I don't really... I mean, a lot of it just comes from me overhearing people talk about it. Like, I never watched the end of this until yesterday when I watched the movie. But I knew who the killer was because, you know, people talk about it. I hadn't seen Scream 2 in its entirety, but I knew about Scream 2 in its entirety. Uh, Just like I haven't seen Scream 3, but I already know who dies in Scream 3. In fact, I also know who dies in Scream 5 because fuckers can't stop spreading spoilers all over the internet. I don't know that yet, so I'm glad that... Uh, I'm here to protect you, Alex. Thank you. You act as a, a buffer. I appreciate that. I'm inquisitive. All right, so Wes Craven back here with us. And specifically for this one, the involvement of Courtney Cox, as we are here in episodes two of the Friends Stravaganza, the Monica Geller character. For this Friends Stravaganza... One of our friends in the podcasting community has been so gracious as to kind of provide some 
you know, previously on or catching you up to speed information on these characters from friends. So Julio, uh, I believe we have one for Monica. Is that correct? That is correct. Here, here we have once again, Billy from We Watch a Thing with a, a Monica 101. Take it away, Billy. Hello, dearest Contrarians listeners. Once again, it's B Dizzle here. I thank you for coming back to class and for not ditching this lesson, because this one's important. Here we are talking about Monica Geller, played by Courtney Cox. Monica is arguably one of the top two most connected friends in the series, along with her brother, Ross. Monica's best friend from high school was Rachel Green, and obviously her connection with her brother is kind of what holds them to the other friends, being Chandler and Joey. Monica is a chef, she's food obsessed, the show often makes light of the fact that she was a heavier child, which honestly, watching the show in 2022, she's about the average sized human. Throughout the course of the show, Monica actually really grows a great deal. She does get flanderized quite a bit into the neat freak category, but once she forms a relationship with Chandler, who she ends up marrying and having a child with, everything turns around. Honestly, Courtney Cox's performance is probably one of the strongest in Friends. She's incredibly funny, and that is why she is my third-ranked friend. I hope you enjoyed this short lesson, and I look forward to catching up next class. Monica got flanderized. Yeah, you probably you, you probably didn't stick with the show long enough to see this happen, but uh, I think it happens to everybody, you know, in a way, because I think it happened to Joey, too. He, he was flanderized into, uh, you know... A dumber version of of himself. From what you remember of Monica and the show, how close do you think that uh, Gail Weathers is like to that character? Oh, Gail's different, right? And it especially seems like they make her way more foul mouthed in this one, and kind of. I assume that was the idea with her hair too. I don't even know if that was her real hair, but like just to separate her from Monica, because Monica's like kind of ditzy and like kind of dorky right but see it's tricky because uh, the, when i think of monica i mostly think uh what, what billy said type a like really like uptight and uh just constantly like stressed out and uh i think originally i think rachel was more of the ditzy type and phoebe was more of the dorky type because monica was more like the, the the businesswoman you know she had her own at some point she has her own kitchen or whatever so i actually think well i guess it's because in the previous episode don west was so different from joey gail to me seems actually not too removed from uh from monica geller because she's kind of like you know a, a very like headstrong woman that wants things the way she wants them and in the show monica falls for chandler who's just a big doofus in scream gail falls for dewey who is an even bigger doofus so I actually think that there's a few parallels. Uh, Dewey still is decent at his job. Do you think, uh, th- without getting too far into into the recap, but do you think that Dewey is better at his job here than he was in the first one? Yes. Yeah. The first one, he's like... The first one, Dewey is the character that dies first in a movie about Vietnam. Like, he... <laughs> He's too excited and, you know, comes into doorways with his head stuck straight out. And in this one, you know, he's a bit more kind of uh, his performance is a bit more over the top. But I think he's more hardened and um, learned and, you know, kind of ready for what's going to be thrown his way. But that sets the stage here for 
this episode. And if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're a returning listener, give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do to any and all potential new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. We will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. What we'll do then is make a case for uh, maybe some of the more overrated aspects of the movie, bad acting, bad narratives, some sloppy direction or cinematography, things that critics kind of swept under the rug. And then conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, usually shoot for about 30% below. And as you could guess, what we'll do is argue a, a defense for that movie and some of the positive merit of it that isn't celebrated quite enough, be it acting, bold writing choices, score, uh, direction. All this in an attempt to, one, point out the Rotten Tomato system is uh, flawed and never really tells the whole story. And two, that you can be as over the moon about anything as you want to be, or you can be as critical and cynical about something as you want to be if you set your mind to it. Now, we usually shoot for about 90% and above for our fresh films. Uh, since we're doing one of our famous arcs here, uh, not unlike our Summer of Travolta or our uh, Summer mm-hmm. of Winona, or our contrarian summer road trip. Sometimes we make a little bit of an exception. So for the Friends Stravaganza, for Scream 2, for Monica Geller's entry, 81% of Rotten Tomatoes is going to be just fine for us. So in the first portion here, we're going to be, uh, I guess, trashing, for lack of a better word, Scream 2 and pointing out its uh, shortcomings. Uh, Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies we cover, and specifically for this case, Scream 2, they just have to hang around for the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, that's where we tell you how we really feel, uh, regardless of the tomato meter score. Sometimes in Real Talk, we also find out for the first time how the other one feels about this movie. I just revealed to Alex, or maybe I just reminded him, that I hadn't watched uh, Scream 2 all the way through, which means I didn't really have an opinion on Scream 2 until very recently, until last night when I finished the movie. So did I like Scream 2? Did I hate Scream 2? Alex will find out along with the rest of you. 81% of Rotten Tomatoes, Julio. Like I said, we'll be treating this as fresh. And even just from like... My friend circles, people hold this scream in a pretty high regard. Um, I'm still not entirely sure why, but... Jerry O'Connell, that's why. I guess so. White boy Jerry can just change your opinion of a movie on a drop of a dime. That's why so many people love Stand By Me. Old pretty Jerry much. O'Connell wrote to marry him. So, Julio, critics, 81%. There, that That is what you call a consensus. What were they saying about this? All right, we got a few fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Lisa Alspector from the Chicago Reader, who says, if you like Scream, there's no reason you shouldn't like the sequel. Alex, do you think that's... <laughs> it's such a lazy review. Yeah, <laughs> right. why not? <laughs> well, do you think it's because uh, this is basically the same movie as yes. its predecessor? It's, it's also yep. the same movie as Halloween H2O. <laughs> same soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this movie is Halloween H2O. Or, I'm sorry. Halloween H2O came the year after this. Halloween H2O is Scream 2. <laughs> well, you know, it's really about what you watch first, not what came first. It's, like uh, it's the chicken and the egg. Yeah, time is a circle and all that. Uh, Joe Baltaki from the Sacramento Bee says, most intelligent movie of the moment. What year was this? 97? Yeah. You want to hear some shit while we're in that? You want to talk about of the moment? Uh-huh. Uh, this was supposed to come out the same weekend as Titanic <laughs> and Tomorrow Never Dies. And those two 
shifted their release dates as to not go against Scream 2. <laughs> Titanic. Cameron blinked. He looked at Craven. I was like, oh, this man means business. That's what I thought when I looked up the release date. I was like, this movie still made almost $200 million in December of 97. It was, like, it was, it was all in that first week because in the background, James Cameron came with his shark fin up. And he was like, out of the way, old man. The future is now. <laughs> oh, so he was not scared of Craven. He was just he was doing Craven a favor. It's like, all right, I'll let you have this one so you have at least a weekend of uh, pleasure with your little movie. But after that. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I interpreted it. Or 20th Century Fox was just like, Jim, we don't know. I mean, this this film's a gamble. We, you know, if we if we if we don't do good, we we lose everything. The, the whole studio's riding on this. Have you seen Nev Campbell? <laughs> they got Monica from Friends again. All right. Well, most intelligent movie of the moment speaks pretty poorly of the collective IQ of 1997 as a year, I guess. No shit. What was out in the theaters? Just a bunch of Marvel shit? (laughs) 97. What was it? Blade? Blade 2? Continue on and I'll see what I can find of 1997. Uh, Lisa Schwartzbaum from Entertainment Weekly says, A yum yum cast of pretties pull off the neat trick of affectionately counting the many ways available to horror sequels to suck without making a sequel that sucks. A yum-yum cast of pretties. Uh, I can already hear our friend uh, Ryan from the Yum Yum podcast screaming that uh, the only yum-yums are on his show. But Alex, if you had to assign top yum-yumness to someone on this cast, on this cast of pretties, who's, who's top yum-yum here? Timothy Oliphant's a fine-looking man, but like I said, uh, Nev Campbell, she's just so fucking 90s hot. It's fantastic. 90s chic or just 90s hot? I invite you to consider, Julio, that Goodwill Hunting was in theaters at the point that this was released. A movie that's actually about an intelligent man. (laughs) Several of them, actually. Alien Resurrection would have still been in theaters. Flubber. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Home Alone three. All right, we're we're just it's breaking down. It's turning into bedlam here. Let's stop at Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> okay, final quote: Brian Fraser from Brian Fraser's Deep Focus. The first thing you realize about Scream Two is that unlike its predecessor, it's actually scary. All right, two part question here, Alex. Do you find what? the first Scream scary? <laughs> yes. Do you find the second Scream scary? No. <laughs> Well, Brian Fraser, there you go. A hard disagree from both contrarians because I agree that's, with my co-host. Yeah, that's but that I mean to be fair, that's nothing new. First Texas Chainsaw Massacre, terrifying. The rest of them, not. It's the way of the gun. It's the magic show. You see the trick once, it's not going to be as scary. The difference is some of those other franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, you know, they bring Freddy into the real world. Uh, fucking Friday the 13th they turn Jason into this zombie that can control the the tides and lightning and shit so they try to introduce new things into it to make it potentially more scary this is just the same thing it's just like for some reason Timothy Oliphant's got the strength of fucking Brock Lesnar because he's able to just hoof uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar off the, the roof of a building like effortlessly just scoops her up and throws her off it's like uh, Bane and Batman, or um, <laughs> Zeus does that to someone in No Holds Barred too. It's just ridiculous. But 
<laughs> what's what's a bane line that i would have i mean fuck any bane line just delivered by timothy oliphant yeah i'm trying to think of just like him at the end of the movie all spoiler all crazy where he's just like i was wondering what was gonna break first <laughs> your spirit <laughs> or your body <laughs> uh yeah th- this is uh you're right. I mean, the the only thing that uh, Scream does differently, the only change from movie to movie, is who gets to wear the mask. But that's it. Everything else is pretty much the same. The one thing, the one original thought the, the, from the franchise, which was the commentary on the horror genre. I mean, that's that's just a that's a one and done. And after that, you're just commenting on the commentary, which is nowhere near as amusing. And that, like it started here, but with the whole franchise's obsession with meta, 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 and that's something that we're still kind of reeling from today. Because the whole thing is, you know, with this one, there's a movie within a movie. Because there's a a fictional film in Scream Two called Stab that's based on the first Scream, and it's just like Austin Powers. Oh no, Basil, I've gone cross-eyed. It's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls getting their white asses cut the fuck up, okay? I, I'm of the opinion we should just jump right in here because it seems to me like the only person that's never seen Scream or doesn't know the premise of it is probably Santa Claus. So it, <laughs> I don't think we we have to catch listeners up to speed on this, but the good news is if for some reason you're not familiar with it, the movie does it for you in the annoying way of, like I said, presenting it as a fictional movie in the the scream verse but man talk about of the moment of the time we get jada pinkett smith here is one of the first people we see on screen alex level with me be honest how many uh will smith slap jokes do you have on your notes or did you resist the temptation yeah i i resisted is it omar epps you're a bigger man than me I wrote one, but I'm not going to use it. Uh, yeah, that okay. is Omar Epps. Yeah, so they're going to see Stab. Did you notice, Alex? This is this is the curse of having worked in movie theater. Did uh, you did, did you write down the price of the ticket they were referenced? No. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I didn't go that far. All right. I noticed that Jada ordered a small Pepsi, and it was the size of her head. Oh, yeah, no. Those fucking small ones were like four fifty when I worked there, and those were like, make a C with your hand right now, and that's about as big <laughs> as the cup was. <laughs> But no, they talked about uh, she didn't want to go see the horror movie. She wanted to go see the new Sandra Bullock movie. And Omar Epps was like, ain't nobody going to pay seven fifty to see some Sandra Bullock movie. And I was like, man, seven fifty now. I don't even know if the first showing of the day, you know, the early bird special is that cheap. But it'll be in 3D. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. So according to this, you know, on a Friday night, 15 bucks gets you in the movie. And you get a small Pepsi the size of Jada Pinkett's head. <laughs> <laughs> Sandra Bullock getting a call out here was funny. I'm curious if she turned rebuffed some offer to be in here, but she would have already been kind of one of the eight girls in Hollywood because we in our speed episode we talked about how that was kind of her springboard, but still as relevant today as she was then. That that's always kind of funny to me when there's meant to be like a joke in a movie that you kind of feel is meant to date it if someone watches it twenty years from now. And that doesn't work because, like, everyone still knows who Sandra Bullock is. So, jokes on you, Craven, or I guess in this case, uh, Williamson. Williamson. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. Maybe they they originally offered her the the Heather Graham part. I always forget that's Heather Graham. Did you think at first that it was uh, Wendy Peppercorn? Yeah, because um, the big eyes. 
in the blonde hair. It doesn't look like Heather Graham, especially when you consider like the next year was uh, the spy who shagged me. She's like a sex icon in that movie. That is, uh, wouldn't it be funny if uh, Heather Graham becomes the the link between the all the episodes of the Friends Travaganza? I don't think it's going to happen, but <laughs> fingers crossed, baby. Hey, let's hope that we find her in a cameo on uh, Almost Heroes. Marley Shelton. I was trying to remember that woman's name. I kept wanting to say Sarah Polly, but I know that's not right. Marley yeah. Shelton was Wendy Peppercorn. Yeah, no, she was two two screams away. All right, so Jada Pinkett, Omar Epps, go to see Stab. It's a fun night at the theater. Awesome little trivia bit here. The usher that gives them the the gimmicks. Like, here you go. Uh, the studio center. You know, the one they hand them the masks and shit. Uh-huh. Well, for one, Julio and I know that some studios would send shit to hand out to people that came to the movies. Uh, it was never that elaborate. Uh, <laughs> the coolest ones I remember were guitar picks for Scott Pilgrim versus the world because I still have one. The woman who played the usher. Her name was Paulette Patterson won her role in a contest through MTV. It was like, you know, send in your proof of purchase and you can be in fucking scream. And <laughs> the idea of that is something that's completely gone. I, I would love the idea of explaining that to someone who's, you know, 15 right now. Like, yeah, you just like called this telephone number and they <laughs> f- flew you out to Hollywood to be in a movie. So uh, better actors than Wes Craven. We can Does say that have... categorically. Well, he's not in this one, but you know, we saw him in New New Nightmare. He is in the first one. He has a cameo in the first screen. But yeah, New Nightmare. He, fucker plays himself and still is not believable. <laughs> My original plan was to watch the first scream and then watch this one. Uh instead I only watched the beginning of the first scream. And uh and then I'm like, I I, I have stuff to do. <laughs> but our our <laughs> This movie makes it sound like there weren't any black characters in the first Scream. Is that correct? Oh, Scream is like seminal white people shit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because uh, this first sequence, you know, with Omar Epps and, and Jada Pinkett Smith, it's, uh, you know, the cleverness in quotation marks of the of the commentary this time is that they're talking about, you know, you have two black characters talking about the fate of black characters in horror movies. And... It felt like a, kind of like a, a bit of a course correction. You know, like I said, I didn't get to rewatch Scream, but I'm like, okay, this sounds like Kevin Williamson apologizing for not having any black characters in the in the first movie. Yet he still follows the time-honored tradition of making the black characters the first one to die in the movie. Yeah, he, he calls it out and he thinks that that makes it okay. <laughs> He's like, well, if I address it, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> Because, yeah, Omar Epps goes into the, the bathroom and he's in the stall and gets stabbed in the temple. It's actually pretty metal because he gets stabbed and spits out a bunch of blood. I mean, this is a movie of dumb people. And that's setting the tone really, really early on. If you heard whispers uh, in the stall next to you, would you you know, put your, your ear against the stall? No. That's gross. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Yeah, my face against anything in a public bathroom it's like Ruxin from the league talks about. I won't even chew gum in a public bathroom. <laughs> so whoever the killer is takes out Omar Epps, puts his clothes on, goes into the theater, uh, stabs Jada Pinkett a few times. Will Smith is heard from the back of the auditorium. <laughs> Keep your knife out of my fucking wife's stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Jada Pinkett, bloody, disoriented, goes up on the movie theater stage as. Hundreds of people 
shout and throw popcorn at the screen. She dies there. And then title screen, Scream 2. Nowhere near as impactful as the opening scene of the original Scream. Like, the original Scream, that opening scene is, like, an all-time moment in horror films. Dude, it doesn't help that they are playing a version of that opening scene. (laughs) Consistently (laughs) reminding you of it used to be better. Yeah. It's like, yes, it's Heather Graham instead of Drew Barrymore. It's still better than what's happening in the actual movie. Nev Campbell, my God, my note says here. (laughs) She wakes up. She has caller ID now, which is a huge uh, advance in technology and an unexpected twist in the story because people, you know, consistently try to prank call her. It's all happening again. She sees the news and two college students were killed last night at the the premiere. Uh, this movie approaches can't hardly wait slash grease levels of. I know when you say college student, you get a little bit more leeway than high school student. Timothy Oliphant looks <laughs> like if he if, if Timothy Oliphant in this movie, if he went to a college party, people would be weird out, weirded out by how how old that guy looks like. What's going on? <laughs> but then again, well, he's hot, so it's okay. Oh, he's smoking. And yeah, he's. we get introduced to him in our very next scene. We film class with Randy. It's this college film course. Uh, we get Randy, Jamie Kennedy, is uh, Pacey, I never remember his name. The Joshua Jackson. Film. Thank you. Who Doesn't is, show up again. <laughs> yeah, well, he's also not too far in the rearview mirror for us as he was in Muppets in Space, or Muppets from Space, excuse me. He had more lines there. <laughs> He didn't get corrected on his lines yet. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Timothy Oliphant, and this fucking nerd playing the professor. Are you saying that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? They get into a discussion about sequels, how there's no sequel better than the original, which is obviously idiotic. Timothy God, Oliphant. I was banging my head against the arm of the couch. <laughs> Has this ever been... A clever conversation. The whole like, oh, which sequel is better? It's like, I don't know. Maybe film Twitter has just jaded me beyond salvation. But this shit does not age well. No, this is meant to be like clever. And, and you know, oh, the fact that, that after, I don't know, 10 minutes of conversation, they arrive to the big like, oh, The Godfather too. Yeah. How did we not think of that before? It was like, that's how you open the conversation these days. No and- shit. Godfather, <laughs> like it's that and T2, they save. And it's like, that's what you lead off with. I got it, by the way. I got it. The Godfather, part two. I know that there's like a little bit of license because this movie is not necessarily like meant to be realistic. But the way that these people talk, this is Juno before Juno. This was a ghost written by Diablo Cody, or at least script doctor by Diablo Cody. The, The way that they talk is just so fake. And it's not just the it's not just the film students. It's it's pretty much everybody in the movie. That's that's a Kevin Williamson thing. Is that is that what happened? Because I, I guess Dawson's Creek was kind of like a little bit like that too, where the the kids in that movie or in that show spoke like TV characters, not like real people. Did you were you just annoyed by the way people talked? It's like an exaggerated version of the first Scream, and already, just based on this conversation, I can tell I've seen the first Scream probably 50 more times than you have, so like I I think it's unfair for me to expect you to remember all the dialogue from there, but it's very similar. See, my, but- my, my recollection was that Randy spoke like that in the first Scream, well- and everybody else was kind of like, okay, you know, movie characters, but not like movie characters. <laughs> well, see, the difference here is, 
it feels like and it is what it is it they capture the uh, the pure annoyingness of a college freshman that, <laughs> that already thinks they're wise beyond their years and really doesn't know anything yet so in that sense it's great in another sense it's painful to watch i think i sat in on just a couple film classes so i don't mean to comment on what they're all like but bro yeah i, I went to film school <laughs> Well, I was about you. to say, is it just the same four people saying shit back and forth and everyone sits around and high fives and is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I I mean, granted, I guess we were like, we, we got a glimpse into their one film class with the cool teacher that allows them to indulge in these bullshit conversations. But there was a lot more about just the craft <laughs> and not this this is again this is like a twitter conversation you know i, I don't know I, I found them really annoying but of course maybe i would find myself annoying if i travel back in time and what the fuck was i talking about back then you know the matrix dude if i like <laughs> yeah if i heard myself if i went back in time and could talk to myself as a freshman in college i probably would have like shot my former self and then disappeared a la the end of looper <laughs> It's for the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Big White Jerry is my next note as Jerry O'Connell appears. He is Sydney's boyfriend. Nev Campbell, Sydney, of course. And he plays uh, Derek Feldman, which is fitting because that's like the whitest name possible. He is your typical uh, fraternity jock and bland. Very, very milquetoast vanilla. Uh, it sucks because you know we just saw him in uh, Can't Hardly Wait, where he had a tenth of the screen time he has in this movie, and he made a hell of a of an impression. It was one of my favorite oh, parts. Easily, of that movie. his scene in Can't Hardly Wait is ten times more memorable than anything he does in this movie. Now, I'll 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 go with my controversial, my most controversial opinion about this movie. It might even upset you, Alex. I think. Sydney Prescott is pretty boring. And I figure out why halfway through, and that is that she's too well adjusted for somebody that went through some pretty traumatic shit in the first movie and then some just as traumatic in this movie. You know, it, she always seems to just kind of like brush it off. She's like, oh, I'm a badass now. I know, I'm, I'm, I refuse to, to be defeated by, by my traumas. Which is kind of, uh, I get that it's like an inspirational take on on a female protagonist of a horror movie, but it's also just... They were too quick to make her Sarah Connor. I mean, it's funny you said uh, Halloween H2O, because Jamie Lee Curtis in that movie, she has some shit going on. that You know, she has some psychological issues that she has to deal with throughout the movie. Uh, I was going to say it was like the 2018 Halloween. Like, I, that was my I, next point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can have strong characters that are still dealing with trauma instead of having just this. It just makes her so uninteresting because it it takes scream away from four. the. <laughs> scream well, four is better than Scream two because of what Julio's saying. Rewatch of Scream four pending. You might be right. <laughs> I remember way back when we did Scream four that I had that. I, I made that uh, that comment because there's that one scene between her and Dewey in Scream 4. And I remember saying, I wish that the movie had more of this, where you get the sense that these people have gone through a horror movie and now they're yes. dealing with that. And I remember 
clear as day. Eddie saying, well, that's what happens in Scream 2. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> you lied to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, Scream 4 is by no means perfect, but it has what we're talking about. Like, it shows Sydney at her home with a shit ton of locks and, like, I think, you know, all the security systems she's got and just, yeah, that of trauma. And also, while we're talking about this, we're jumping around a little bit more than we usually do, listeners. It's because there's the plot of this movie's it, it, it would have taken us five minutes to get through it. Yeah, it's a horror but, movie. Yeah, okay, calm down. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's a scream movie. Thank you. Yes, I understand it's the second one and it's early in it, but there needs to be something said too. Not only is Sydney too well adjusted, she brings death to so many innocent people. And it's not even really addressed. It's just like, oh, shit. She very blatantly and uh, like there's no disputing it causes the death of her roommate towards the end of the movie because she's taking her time doing something. And she uh, she wants to go back and see who the killer was, giving him, you know, five minutes to recover <laughs> and gets up and stabs her roommate a bunch. And then she's shocked by it. And then, you know, Jerry O'Connell, all these other people die. It's because she's her. And it's not until you get later in the franchise where she has that thought of, like, am I poison? You know, stay away from me. People get close to me. People get hurt. Uh, and like, even, uh, even in a more realistic uh, fashion, she sent Cotton Weary to the prison. Yes. <laughs> Never shows she... any remorse about this. <laughs> no. And it's just because, like, it's uh, Courtney Cox, who is showing up on the scene here in just a second. Uh, she says in the first one, Sydney's like, no, Cotton killed my mother. I saw him leaving the house. And, and Gail's like, no, you saw someone leaving the house. And yeah, this bitch like testified against him and got him sent to prison for murder. And then he didn't do it. And she didn't even say sorry. She's just like, all right, well, my bad. The entire movie, the entire scream to Sydney and, and, Pretty much every character watches Cotton as this creep that uh, that wants attention, and you know he is in a way. But but there's never this, there's never a sympathetic face towards him. You know where where yeah. they go like, oh yeah, but he went through a lot. No, I mean he was legally <laughs> exonerated, but he wants his public image back. He was just a dude that was getting some on the side, and then he got like swept up and framed for murder and sent to the pen. Ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> yeah as norm mcdonald would say cotton all right weary would just walk in <laughs> yeah cotton weary tells <laughs> tells dave campbell you got a lot of growing up to do i'll tell you that <laughs> all right gail weathers the reporter shows up on the scene and courtney cox is not unrecognizable from the first one but is like has the makeover that a movie separated by a decade would necessitate not uh less than a year I have an all caps in my note, Courtney Cox's hair. <laughs> it's that kind of like Rachel do of the uh-huh. the the side part with the, the poof at the bottom. But it's like burgundy with black lowlights. And man, it is something. I mean, I was a kid of the early 2000s. I had highlights. You know, uh, my cousins did the lowlights and all the trends and fads that came with it. I do not remember any of the girls I went to school with, like, 
let's just say middle school through high school, I don't remember any girls having hair like this. So Courtney Cox was just like, make me different. <laughs> and that's honestly the first thing I think about anytime I think about this movie is her hairdo. But Gail Weathers is back and she's snappy. She's got a fucking <laughs> waist the size of a Coke can. She's just <laughs> so thin. <laughs> Courtney Cox movie star Julio. We know her as Monica Geller, and that's obviously where she made her nut and will be, you know, long after she's left this earth be making money off of. Movie star Courtney Cox, though. What do you make of it? I mean, it is Scream, right? I mean, that, that's that's as far. I mean, fuck, that's what we picked Scream two for for the friends of Agansa. This is the if you're gonna use if sadly you're going to use Rotten Tomatoes as the as the metric for success of your movie, as so many people do, uh, this is her highest rated movie, and uh, you know she has four more of these. <laughs> I can't think of any other movies that uh, that she's been in that were. Uh, oh, you know what? The first time I saw her in a movie, uh, the first day's Ventura. Yeah, I always forget about that. Yep. And then, you know, I know we're doing 3,000 Miles to Graceland uh, for the patrons, but... You're leaving out, not television, not film, but her greatest on-screen role. Oh, uh, Spring Sing? Yes, thank you. <laughs> she can dance. I assume they made you answer that question. That was like a trivia question when you got your citizenship, so I knew you would know the answer to it. It was the, the bonus round. <laughs> The the lightning round. (laughs) She is a television star and will always be. She's not Julia Louis Dreyfus. That's no insult because obviously she's fucking rich. But like, you know what I mean? Like Julia Louis Dreyfus had Seinfeld and Veep and SNL and all these other things that she did. And she's had some great movies that she's made. But Courtney Cox is like most of the people on Friends. It's just such an iconic role that when you see them in a movie, it's the novelty of, hey, (laughs) it's Friends. And. (laughs) We talked about in our last episode with Lost in Space about Joey. It's like he's trying. It's just kind of hard to take him seriously because he's Joey. Here, though, to her credit, and one of the positive things I'll say about this, she has this kind of conniving, you know, a bad bitch, as the kids say these days. That's kind of just cold, no nonsense, and she's there to do a job. And it more so than with Matt LeBlanc in our last one, I, I had a much easier time buying her as kind of a a badass reporter in this one. I thought for what the role asks of her, she nails it. Of course, later on, it turns her into just a girl who's yep. fawning over a guy. That's a problem. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because I agree. And that's kind of like what we we're saying earlier, right? Because the transition from Monica Geller to Gail Weathers is not as, as drastic as what, what Matt LeBlanc had to do in Lost in Space. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to just buy it. Like you could see that in a parallel dimension, the multiverse, there's a planet Earth where Monica Geller didn't become a chef, but instead she became a reporter, and she would be pretty similar to to Gail Weathers. So that's easy to buy. The part that's harder to buy is the the when they try to humanize her by giving her a, a romance with Dewey, which is you know maybe I'm misremembering the again we've established I I don't remember the first one anywhere near as well as you do. Did they have? chemistry in the first one at any point like is this the connection that they they're trying to tell us they have in this movie is it earned from what happened in the first movie oh yeah they they have that scene where they they go on a walk together like they're smitten the entire time and it's just kind of picking up where it left off what does she see in him (laughs) i don't get it (laughs) 
that he has all the makings of a future world heavyweight champion. Oh, she could she could see the future. She uh, could. Man, yeah, okay, I don't know. Let, well, okay, let's talk about Dewey because I think in order to address this issue, we need to, <laughs> we need to yes. talk about the other half of the of the my, problem. My next note is the champ. So Dewey is no longer on the force and he's not left paralyzed, but he definitely has a limp and a tick from his encounter with Ghostface. And An the inconsistent screen. limp. <laughs> it it comes and goes. So Dewey's back at it, and he's there just because he knows what's going on, and it's basically a reunion of him, Randy, Sydney, and Gail, and him and Gail pick right back up with the the doe eyes and the flirtation and whatnot. And I I guess he's just there to kind of oversee it. He's not even like a PI or anything. He's just like someone standing by, you know, that will tell the cops how to do their job or something. I think he's he screams citizens arrest at some point. But he, he has like the same beige jacket on the entire time and just total white guy attire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he looks creepier than anybody else in the movie. Just some, well, because he's got his hair slicked back. In the first one, like his hair is kind of like messy and kind of pushed over to the side. There's like he's a doofus, but there's lights of him where you see him in the uniform. You're like, yeah, I can see why Monica wants to go after this guy. In this one, he's just like this fucking almost like voyeur. He <laughs> like he if he had glasses on, he would look like a caricature of a pedophile. Yep, is basically what what would that would be the score for for Dewey in this, and also like you would think he would be more vindictive at the idea of this because his sister got killed in the first one. I understand it's not the same killers, but like the idea of this happening again, you would think he would want to put as that he would be packing and there just more vigilant than he is because he goes to Randy, this guy that's younger than him that has no you know law enforcement background just as watch a bunch of movies and he's like all right tell me what we're dealing with here <laughs> it's ridiculous uh they never even mentioned his sister in this one like at all nev campbell when he when she first see him when they have like a, a bit of a reunion she doesn't say anything and you would think you know she she has to know that he would be as upset by everything that's happening as she is because you know they went through it she went and checked on randy yeah and, but when she sees dewey she kind of says hey hi how's it going and then you know, goes back to her friends. So, what are you doing here? You don't go here. I, I don't get it. I guess that's that's my, my bottom line with Dewey. I I like David Arquette. I just don't get the appeal of this uh, of this character as a sex symbol. Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't get what what Gale sees in him, especially because he is so ineffective. I I don't think he accomplishes anything in the first movie, and he definitely doesn't accomplish anything in this one. Am I misremembering? Did he save her life in the first one? Uh, not really. No, he. They have the moment where they're gonna kiss, and then he goes back to the house and gets stabbed, and <laughs> he survives. It's just kind of a bumpkin, <laughs> just like in this one. Come on, Dewey, smile just once, please. I smile when I catch the killer. Gail gets backhanded by Sydney. It's pretty hot. Uh, <laughs> The leave, every time Leave Shriver shows up in this, I just wrote in my notes, the leave. Gail brings him to do like an interview with him and uh, Sydney and, you know, does like a tabloid journalism ambush style. As if we forgot that there's a killer loose in this movie, hits his next victim. All right, Julio, you know more about this than I do. It's Sarah Michelle Geller plays a character by the name of Cece. 1997, going into 98 here, end of 97. What, uh, where's Buffy at here? Is Buffy started? Is it hot? What's going on with it? 
Uh, let me see. Because Buffy ended when I had just moved to the States. So that is 2001. So going back seven years. So we have to be in like what? Season two, three of Buffy? Like that's that's peak Buffy. So so this was a good get. Uh, and then they fucking kill her off. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not even a third of the way to the movie. Yeah, okay. So we would have been firmly into season two at this point. Okay. she It was yeah. already a big hit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember, I, for whatever reason, I just never got into it. But I, I do remember, yeah, by this point, it was uh, part of the, the pop culture zeitgeist, at least in uh, the Midwest. So, yeah, she answers the phone, makes a mistake of doing so. We get a funny Friday the 13th reference where she's on the other line with her friends. Like, I think someone's here. And then you can hear the other person on the phone going, kill, kill, kill. It's great shit. But Ghostface shows up, chases her to the roof, and then she takes the Mick Foley Hell in a Cell bump off the roof where she just gets thrown off to her death. And whoever was behind that mask had gorilla-like strength because <laughs> she tries to deadweight him but not to be <laughs> it is it is such a disappointing end to her character i mean why would you cast buffy and then not give her a, a, a good fight okay you still have to kill her that's fine you can kill her but but have her put up a fight she just runs and then gets thrown off sydney and the rest of the gang become aware they're at a party on campus on Greek Row, actually, so they just have to go across the street. Actually, get a pretty cool shot of a camera panning up to the house as everyone spills out of it. The thought is is planted that maybe it's Jerry O'Connell, maybe it's Derek, because he chases off Ghostface in the house and gets his arm cut. But everyone thinks it's it's a little too convenient. So at <laughs> he's this a, he's point, a med student, so he knows exactly where to cut to yes, not to harm himself too badly. So Timothy Oliphant uses this time to try to slide in and mac on. Sydney when they're at the hospital. It's admirable. I get it. <laughs> the uh, man shot is shot. <laughs> the next day in the mess hall in the cafeteria, because there's been multiple murders of students, one on <laughs> campus, and we're still just going about business as usual. Uh, Sydney, real talk. <laughs> Sydney is still going to her play. She wants to yeah. be an actress. Yes. They just send, isn't it, like two FBI agents to follow her around? Yeah. Like, and, like, uh, they both look like David Paymer and No Holds Barred. <laughs> and real talk in Trans Corner, this scene makes my skin crawl. I, it's awful because Jerry O'Connell gets his big musical number where he sings I Think I Love You to Sydney and puts his Greek letters on her neck. It's It's not good. People are dying. Would you feel better about it if he was a better singer? Maybe. Because he's fucking <laughs> Maybe terrible. If it was Joseph Gordon-Levitt up there crooning, I, I might be okay with it. Or like Oscar Isaac or something. Heath Ledger. Was that before or after this? Uh, after. To the Google machine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought this was 97 or 98. 10 Things I Hate About You, 1999. Yeah, it's not good. I don't really know what more there is to say about it. Okay, well, just kind of like to, to, to close the loop here with Jerry O'Connell. Because really, there's not much to his character. But... One of the reasons there's so much to his character, I think, is that like as bland as he is, they have to keep him even blander because if they give him any more character, it would prove that he either is or isn't the killer. You know what I mean? Like they they have to keep him at arm's length because the movie has decided that he's going to be one of the suspects. And so if we get to know him too much, 
then the spell is broken. And so it handicaps that, itself that way. I, I think that it even... Did you get the feeling that the movie was also trying to make Dewey a suspect? Yeah, the whole thing is they, they try to make it everyone's a suspect. It's like, it's knife, it's knives out. Like, anybody could have done it. That's the famous line from the trailer from the first Scream, is uh, Jamie Kennedy yelling, everyone's a suspect. So you're saying that uh, Ryan Johnson ripped off <laughs> Scream? Why not, man? So, uh, yeah, Jerry Connell, I mean... They can't give him any real personality, so instead they give him a musical number. That's how it goes. We go, and I'm not kidding, at Baskin Robbins. There was some kind of sponsorship deal with this. I don't know what it was, but we make sure we see all of the Baskin Robbins logos, and the cups are all perfectly centered so that BR logos facing the camera. Beautiful product placement. But it's uh, Dewey and Randy, David Arquette, and Jamie Kennedy having a conversation about what's going on. They catch the TV that's on in the, the establishment that's got like the, you know, extra entertainment tonight interview with Tori Spelling talking about her role as Sydney and stab. Uh, we get a reference where Randy says he doesn't like who they cast. And he tells David Arquette, at least you got David Schwimmer. So there you go. <laughs> Another friend extravaganza connection. We get to see a scene from the film, uh, the, the fictional film Stab, in which Tori Spelling plays Sydney and Luke Wilson plays, um, fuck, what's Billy? The, Billy, Billy, Billy Loomis. Yeah. It's funny just because they're both like acting poorly, but Luke Wilson is particularly fantastic at it. Man, uh, the connections continue. We just saw Luke Wilson in back to back installments of Charlie's Angels over on our patron channel. This little universe of the, the Friends universe. Uh, inadvertently is uh, pretty incestuous, I think. <laughs> it's true. As Julio called out, we we cut to Sydney, who's still wanting to go forth with this play that she's doing, and we get drama student Sydney here, just determined to give the performance of a lifetime. And again, like, I don't know. Anyone ever been murdered on campus that you went to? Uh, not for me, but I'd assume things would kind of come to not like maybe a grinding halt, but at least like a a uh, uh, slow. We would we would take the boiling pot off and say, "All right, let's see what's going to happen here." Uh, but no, it's all still forward. I think Guns they try to justify it by having her have a heart to heart with her drama teacher. And, yeah, and he's like, "No, go for it. I don't have an understudy. I need this." David Warner, the actor who played the, the drama teacher, I'm pretty sure we've had him on the show before. Was it Star Trek? Star Trek Five. Yes, there you go. He played John Talbot in there. Look at Julio. Don't fuck around with Star Trek. (laughs) That's what it is. Motherfucker, I knew this guy's face, and I'm just realizing it in real time. He's Lovejoy in Titanic. (laughs) I did not recognize that. See, this shows our strengths. Star Trek, Titanic. So this dude... He he like had the first week at the box office for Scream Two, and then <laughs> reigned supreme for fifteen more weeks. <laughs> you couldn't tell this dude nothing. Like he was just showing <laughs> showing up to Chuck E. Cheese with no shirt on and like board shorts and a big gold chain, and just like told everyone beat it and just rented out the place for an afternoon. <laughs> God bless David Warner. All right, Sydney wants to go forward with her play. Is this the part where we get the rehearsal where she thinks she's being chased by Ghostface? Uh, yes. Very artsy, very boring. Nothing happens. It's just five minutes of her dancing. That's this movie. This is the whole second half of this movie. The first half is like fairly interesting, but like the second half is just so boring. It's just like everyone thinking they see Ghostface. 
And this scene here is just like, there's some traumatic shit going on. Why do you think a good idea is to surround this woman by strobe lights and people in costume? I, I don't yeah. understand. Um, this is where, uh, after this traumatic experience, she breaks up with uh, Jerry Connell. And uh, I actually wrote down his line where, uh, you know, she doesn't really break up. But she It's more like she says, in true friend's fashion, she's like, we need to go on a break. Oh, yeah. I need and, some time. Yeah. And, and then he goes, do I get a say on this? <laughs> like, dude. <laughs> I know she Read acts like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know she acts like no, nobody's being murdered. Like, there's no trauma. But, but you should know, at least. Even if she's not uh, projecting it outwards, you should still know that... Uh, it's, it's not a good time, but I guess once again, they, they're trying to make him a, a suspect. So he needs to look kind of creepy and potentially dangerous. Another friend's reference in the next scene uh, in which Gil's smoking and they ask, uh, when did you start smoking? And Randy says, like, ever since those naked pictures ever hit the Internet, she said, it was just my head on Jennifer Aniston's body. So Julio, if you weren't paying close enough attention, you might miss that she's on the television show friends <laughs> right <laughs> do you think that there's a there's an extended cut where they there's references to uh matthew perry all of them Matt LeBlanc. Yeah. <laughs> look at that guy's hair is that matthew perry that they reference so. uh oliphant's hairdo and pacey goes like okay chandler goes face just like, could i be any more of a killer <laughs> Randy gets swept up, unfortunately, in this moment. We get the ghost face, uh, the, the call uh, to Gail's cell phone. Randy's the one that answers. We get some back and forth, but unfortunately, he puts his guard down, uh, and it's in Gail's production van that uh, he's pulled into and killed, but no one can hear it because a couple of hoodlums, some local <laughs> students come by with their boombox, their JVC kaboom box, and they're blasting uh, the Cottonmouth Kings, which I appreciate. I went through a big Cottonmouth Kings phase when I was younger, so I uh, enjoyed hearing their, their You didn't music. get anybody killed, though. Not to my knowledge. <laughs> you don't know how many crime scenes you interfered with. <laughs> yeah, just blaring Peace Not Greed by the Cottonmouth Kings and just muffling out cries for help. <laughs> Jamie Kennedy's career dying at your feet, and you didn't even notice. <laughs> well... <laughs> we noticed all of us back in the library of the school we i I, th I thought it was like oh man they're doing the internet thing but they did that in the first one too there's like the instant messenger uh, that played into it but here it's just you're gonna die instant message which that could be any one of your boys fucking with you right like, i mean that's everyone's a suspect anybody could have done it it was don johnson the leave reappears uh more paranoid than the last time we saw him begging <laughs> let's talk about this performance alex <laughs> We know from our time together as friends and our takes on movies and also in this podcast, we know Lee Schreiber's the shit. <laughs> the problem with this movie is they tell him to act differently in every single scene he's in. <laughs> it's like, all right, all right, your first scene here, be tepid, be kind of, you know, uh, eager to please, but not too eager. The second scene, be psychotic and as though you only have one day left to live on Earth. <laughs> Okay, in this scene, just mumble. That's that's <laughs> your goal is you want to mumble. <laughs> that's the, the, what's driving the scene. Uh, I think it's here in the library where like he he barely opens his mouth. He's trying to get. Is it Barbara Walters? Yep. Is, or, uh, okay, he's trying to get an interview, like on you know national television with Sydney to kind of clear his name and also just kind of make amends. 
And Sydney's like, do you understand what's going on right now? <laughs> I know I'm acting like it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. I got bigger fish to fry. And so she tries to leave and he grabs her and her FBI agents come and arrest him. And then he gets taken into custody. <laughs> it's awesome. Cause I, if I remember correctly, it like smash cuts to him in a holding cell with the sheriff, the sheriff's like, so explain to me again why you attack Sydney. And he's like, I didn't attack anybody. Like he says something real catty. Like it wasn't an attack. <laughs> Like the type of shit you see on cops all the time. It's great. <laughs> but you're right. Because here in the, in the scene with the sheriff, he's all sassy again. Like suddenly he, he, he's he got some sass that he didn't have in any of his previous scenes. So maybe he is bipolar or something. <laughs> I don't know. Tripolar. At this point, Julio feels like the right time to call out the local reporter that, um, not hounding, but kind of just like hanging around everywhere and talking to Gail about what an inspiration she is. And she's a writer and, you know, trying to also crack the story, but she's becoming like creepy and stalkerish. It's, uh, Lori Medcalf is the name of the actress. And we never really catch the name of this woman up until this point. But, uh, do you think it's just a smoking gun, Julio, that this crazy woman is stalking all of them or will it pay off later in the movie? Well, the, the, the unfortunate uh, circumstances of watching this, in the year 2022 is that you, you, you see her and you're like, that's Sheldon's mom. Or, I guess in your case, Alex, because you're not a Big Bang Theory uh, fan, uh, you see her and you're like, oh, that's Lady Bird's mom. Academy Award nominated <laughs> Lady Bird's mom. Or are you, are you that big of a dork that you look at her and you're like, oh, that's the other killer from Scream 2. I'm sorry. I just like looked this up and it fucking blew my mind. She does the voice of Andy's mom in the Toy Story movies. I mean, that's not a friend's connection, but that is still really weird. That that hit me hard. That's why. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of anything else I would have seen that I would have recognized her on site. Uh, yes, yeah, she was on Roseanne. Definitely don't watch Big Bang Theory, so I'll take your word for that. Uh, but here, yeah, she just is kind of looming in the background. Got that late '90s mom haircut. Does she look like someone who could have killed uh, Jamie Kennedy? No. Right? Because, <laughs> yeah, again, we're talking, she, like, German suplex or whoever the killer is does the go-behind grasp, like, their Habib Nurmagomedov and, like, pulls them into the, the van. And she, I guess, you know, spoiler, she must have just been doing, like, all the the reconnaissance <laughs> and, and then she was know, making was the phone shoot, calls shooting timothy oliphant up with the gas like you know just shooting the needle in his ass and be like get out there <laughs> she was getting him the steroids and then he was do my bidding yeah. <laughs> so the only smart character in the movie joel who's the new camera person for gail quits he's just like fuck that he literally is just like i'm not stupid enough to hang around here and he leaves. And you know what doesn't happen to Joel? He doesn't get killed. <laughs> Even though he's a black character in a horror movie. Outsmarts all these dumbass white people. Which is the, in this one, movie. the one subversive moment in the movie. Yeah, but this movie is peak white people shit. People just keep getting killed. Oh, we need to look further into this. <laughs> Dewey and Gail go to do their own interrogation. Some of the, I guess, leftover score that was never used for Nightmare on Elm Street is used here because it's like... Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, it yeah, sounds just like full okay. on synth. I it was really weird because nothing in the movie sounds like that. It seems to me that Craven had that on a you know a cassette when he did the score for 
Nightmare on Elm Street, and he's like, God damn it, one day this will get used. <laughs> so this is where Dewey and Gale, their characters, just devolve into sexual beings because they have like the meet cute moment where they headbutt each other. Props to the headbutt sound effect, though, because it sounded like a real headbutt. Uh, and they're trying to watch these tapes and figure out what's going on, and they discover that they're being watched as one of the screens shows, you know, a perspective from looks like uh, kind of like a projection room. They chase after to try to find Ghostface. Dewey gets it again. This dude can't catch a break; just gets stabbed in the back every time. Uh, remind me, like- Alex. Okay, remind me. Does he still have the limp and the kind of like the, the arm bent in a certain way in in the fourth one? Because I don't remember seeing him with that. And but they make it sound here like that's permanent damage. I mean, it's been two years since the first movie, and he's you know limping and his arm is all weird. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I definitely like. I'm not even kidding. I, the, this motivated me to watch the fourth one to see if it if I do like it as much as I think I do in my mind. Yeah, just really inconsiderate. They're about to bang too here, and Ghostface <laughs> interrupted it. He I could do have like waited, this, right? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, like just watched or really punished him like towards the moment of climax. You know, shut the lights off or do something to skip. Boo! <laughs> Hello, Dewey. <laughs> <laughs> I got your girl up here, <laughs> and he had a camera. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's a good point. Like, could have made money on the internet with the Gail Weathers <laughs> sex tape. Ridiculous. Man, that's a horrifying sex tape that ends with a murder. <laughs> you won't believe what happens at the end. Mind-blowing twist. Begin quote. Great. <laughs> Your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious. Ouch. End quote. I do like Dewey getting stabbed here, though, because it's they're in... You know, the film building, they're in the film building, which also has a recording studio. And he's behind like this soundproof wall and Courtney Cox just kind of watches it happen. And you cut to opposing perspectives each time. So like one of them screaming and then the other one is, but you can't hear him either time because they're behind the glass. It's it's pretty cool. Creative sequence. Jerry O'Connell gets kidnapped by his fraternity. He gave away his letters, and now he's going to get hazed. It's like a sexless orgy. Yeah. They go to the auditorium where the play is going to be and put him on the rising pedestal. They crucify him. Yeah, they do. And then they just pour a bunch of beer on his dick, which seems like a real waste. (laughs) The FBI agents that uh, are accompanying Sydney and her roommates... Both get killed. One of them gets stabbed in the neck, and then it causes a car wreck. This scene goes on forever. This car crashes, and Sydney and her roommate are trying to escape. But like Ghostface is in the Ghostface stabs the guy, takes him out, goes behind the driver's seat, and eventually, like due to the, the ruckus and the scuffle, a crash is caused. And it's them trying to get out of the car, Sydney and her roommate, and it just goes on and on and on. And then she finally gets out. And this is what we made an allusion to earlier. She's like, no, I got to go see who it is. So she starts walking towards the car. Ghostface, of course, is back up, jumps out, stabs and kills her roommate. Uh, we don't really see it, just some disgusting sound effects. <laughs> but, you know, this movie, I think, clocks in at about an hour 45, maybe an hour 50. I think 20 minutes of that is this scene. <laughs> yes. Because no, this is this is at two hours. Excuse me. So yeah, twenty minutes of it. <laughs> just <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. By now we're like full on in um, horror movie territory in the sense that characters are just doing the dumbest shit in order to get themselves in trouble. 
you know, whatever smarts they may have displayed in the first half of the movie, they're gone. And so Sydney now is just, it, and it affects everybody because the FBI agents, like they were the best people. That's what the guy said, the sheriff, whoever. They're like, oh yeah, we have our best people watching over her. And they seem pretty capable when they took on Sabretooth earlier, you know, caught him weird, went down like quick. But then suddenly they both get surprised by this guy. By Who do you think it is in this one? Is it Timothy Oliphant or is it uh, Sheldon's mom? I guess this would be the one scene you could make the argument that it's, yeah. Both of them. <laughs> Mrs. Loomis, yeah. Either one, like no matter who it was, like the two, the the best, the two best men in town, they should have been able to to take care of it, but they don't. Everyone dies except for Sydney. Basically, the the point of this, and then she just skips along and is like, "Oh no, I can't die." <laughs> but I'm not bothered by it. Back, <laughs> she yeah. goes into the creepiest building <laughs> just to, right. to prove that I'm she's a- okay. <laughs> I'm gonna go into this abandoned roller rink. Nothing bad can happen here. We go back to Gail, and she is, you know, trying to find some help, and she comes across Cot Weary, who's all bloody because he claims he found Dewey and that uh, he tried to help him. It's so, what the be. fuck was Cotton Weary doing in that building to begin with? I don't know. You just <laughs> wanted to watch Nosferatu in peace or something? <laughs> was he just was he peeping? Was he hoping to catch Dewey and and Monica having sex? Trying to think of like the cotton weary character, like if like what a classic movie he Oh, the French connection. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I could watch this right now. But yeah, then he just finds Dewey and instead of like helping him out of the room, he just comes out covered in his blood. <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> he just like sticks his hand in the wound. Yep, that's a cut all right. <laughs> then he looks at his hands after after Gail has run away to, to get help to call the cops and he goes Stupid. I found Dewey. I tried to help him. I... No, 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 Gail. Wait. Gail, Gail, wait, Gail! Sydney finds Derek hung from the uh, the cross. That was, like we said, where his fraternity put him up. And Ghostface appears now and just takes his mask off. And it's Timothy Oliphant. And he, for a moment, tries to make it seem like him and Jerry O'Connell were in it together. And then he just fucking shoots Jerry O'Connell in the chest. <laughs> Do you do you think that this is Sydney's fault? She doubts uh, him. You know, it's like uh Yeah. Like the 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 religious allegories are, are heavy here. Because he's crucified and and I guess Sydney's like Peter. She denies him three times. Jerry O'Connell died for her sins. Yeah. Basically. She's cutting him. You know, she has a knife, right? She has a knife. She's she's cutting him off the, the cross and uh Oliphant gets in her head and he's like, oh, you know, it's actually the two of us doing it. So she stops. She doesn't set him free. And then Oliphant shoots him. So the last thing that he knows, Jericho thinks, is that Sydney didn't trust him. <laughs> That's how he dies. It's got to be heartbreaking. It's awful from a just simplistic brutality standpoint. The worst death in the entire movie. Jericho just gets that big squib blowing out on his chest. And he's done for. And now Timothy Oliphant just starts ranting and raving about <laughs> what uh, his plan is and how he's going to kill everybody. And then he is going to blame the movies. And I was thinking at the time, like when I was watching this earlier, it was like, okay. And I realized, nope, this was 97. We're still, you know, there had already been like music and doom and shit had been blamed for stuff. But then um, sadly, Columbine is the first time I really remember people like, oh, it's the matrix's fault. And so, Timothy Oliphant, sadly, a little bit ahead of the game on that one. 
It doesn't make his performance any better, though. This is... Uh... No, no. He's a young guy going for it, and it's one of those things we know how good he is now that watching this back, it's like, ooh. Yeah, it's the opposite of an Oscar clip. It's like a, a, a Razzie clip. He's just <laughs> overdoing it, and he goes on forever. It's just, fucking Kevin Williamson can't edit his own shit. Like, uh, you know, as far as, like, this was a first draft monologue. And it should have just been cut down to just something a lot punchier so that the actor doesn't feel like he has all this space to go out. You know, just make it a couple paragraphs instead of two full, two full pages. You see, this is just the beginning, a prelude to the trial. That's where the real fun is, because these days it's all about the trial. Can't you see it? The effects of cinema violence on society. I'll get Dershowitz or Cochran to represent me. Bob Dole on the witness stand in my defense. Hell, the Christian coalition will pay my legal fees. It's airtight, Sid. I didn't like it. And I've seen him play a bad guy in other movies. Uh, I love him in Live Free mm-hmm. or Die Hard, where he is much more controlled as a bad guy. He has some of the mannerisms of his uh, serial killer here, but in a believable way. He's not a cartoon. And here, he's a cartoon. Uh, yes it's it was disappointing because i knew this is you know i told you earlier even though i hadn't watched this part of the movie before i knew that he was the killer because uh, you know that's something that people say it's like oh yeah that's the one where timothy oliphant is the killer so i was actually looking forward to the reveal just to see him go full oliphant and just reveal how how evil he was but instead i just got just this really cheesy bad guy that it's not what i expected yeah it's just erratic and goofy Cartoonish is, is you use the word, and it's exactly right. Uh, Mrs. Loomis, <laughs> at this point now, Gail comes in for the quick, like, oh, it might be Gail, but we find out she's being held at gunpoint by <laughs> do you remember, Billy's mom. Do you remember when you first watched this movie? Did it ever cross your mind that it could have been Gail? No, because she like comes out of there pretty much with her hands up. <laughs> and just the way Sydney, Gail. No. <laughs> But yeah, we find out it's Billy's mother who's there, and it completely like shatters the narrative of the first one. In the first one, Billy does it all because his mom bailed on him and blames Sydney for it because uh, his dad was sleeping with Sydney's mom, and yeah, so Mrs. Loomis was nowhere to be found. And then in this one, it's like, oh, I miss my son. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like you didn't come check on him when all those high school kids were getting slaughtered at his school, and so yeah, I don't. I don't know, man. It, in, in her it defense, doesn't hold up. In her defense, Alex, she is clearly mentally disturbed. So maybe yeah, she's not remembering things clearly. But no, this is bad. It's, it's just bad. Uh, she she doesn't overact the way that, uh, that Oliphant was overacting. But she's still way too high, like on the on the acting level, like on the overacting level for for this scene, especially because I mean it's not like Nev Campbell is great, but she's not really giving her anything to work with. It's like uh, Sydney just underreacts to everything, uh, which forces everybody else around her to overreact. It's it's a terrible combination. Sydney like breaks away, and Mrs. Loomis chases her up the the stage they have there at the auditorium. And Sydney like pushes over the like the styrofoam wall. And if you've ever like dealt with sets like that, for the most part, you know, I know they're these bricks that fall on her weigh like two pounds and she's selling it like an actual brick wall's falling on her. <laughs> yeah, Sydney uses the power of theater to uh to fight back. <laughs> yeah, she just be for a moment becomes Judy Garland. <laughs> uh Gail gets shot. 
did you uh did you think that that was it for her i mean i don't know the first time i saw this you never know because these screen movies there's nothing off limits and so it could have been uh but you know at that point in my life i'd already learned that if you don't see someone specifically die on screen then you know the hayden panettieri contract had not come into the fray yet <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, she she only gets shot once, unlike Oliphant, who gets shot like twenty times <laughs> over the yes. next ten minutes. Yeah, Mrs. Loomis shoots him because, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, he's a dumbass, and I'm framing him, that type of thing. Uh, and then leave the hero appears and has a gun, and he's just like, this is you know, Wes Craven told, or this scene, you've just had enough. And, <laughs> And Leave said, yes, I have. So let's get this over with. Do you have any thoughts about his shooting stance? Like how he holds the gun and how he moves when he's holding the gun? I mean, I appreciate the fact that he looks like he's never shot a gun before in his life. Because that's pro- that would probably be true of the Cotton character. He never killed anybody. Well, you, but don't you think he would have learned in prison? How the f- You don't get guns in prison. <laughs> no, but you're, you're around people that have used guns. I think he was just, you know, reading and getting closer to God the whole time he was there. <laughs> So he's got a gun on Mrs. Loomis and Sydney. Uh, Sydney at this point says, you know, hey, you know that interview with Barbara Walters you wanted? Consider it done. And so in retaliation, not in retaliation, excuse me, in, in gratitude and thanks, he kills Mrs. Loomis. He shoots her with a gun. and Single shot. Yep. He, you know, for the joking we just made about his shooting stance and skills, he he got the job done. So shoots Mrs. Loomis. We find out Gail's okay. Uh, we get the one last scare from Timothy Oliphant comes out and he gets just completely fucking pumped full of lead. He dies. Sydney puts around in uh, Mrs. Loomis's head just to be safe. And then it's a, it's literally like a happy ending. They walk out and the press greets them and like, Sydney, what happened? And she's like, I think cotton's the guy you want to talk to. <laughs> and the, the police, uh, the police have some questions for, for Sydney. Like, why was Mrs. Loomis, why did she have a shot in her head, like execution style? This doesn't, this doesn't match the rest of your story. And then uh, David Arquette just walks out of the building, scratching his back. It's like, oh, it's a flesh wound. <laughs> yeah. He's, All right. Well, guys, I'm going to go home. I feel like my work is done here. <laughs> I accomplished nothing. Same as Gail, by the way. Gail Weathers accomplishes Nothing. Nobody here in this movie accomplishes anything except, I guess, Sydney. And all she accomplishes is just killing the killers that wanted to kill her. That's the Scream franchise. And then it's over. Roll the credits. That is it. A title card hits the screen that says, We don't care what you think. You paid for it. Go the fuck home. <laughs> Ghostface will return in uh, Scream <laughs> Endgame. Julio, I like this movie less and less every time I watch it. So... <laughs> I don't really know what you think about it, so I'm excited and curious to find out your thoughts. All right. Well, let's go to real talk. Let's do. Hey, I think I love you, so what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that I'm not sure of. I love there is no cure for. I think I love you. Isn't that what life is made of? I know it worries me to say. You happy, and if you say hey, go away, I will 
But I think better still, I better stick around and love you. Do you think I have a face? Let me ask you to your face. Do you really love me? Because I think I love you.